0: Welcome this morning. We are making our way through 2 Samuel this fall, and we are in chapters 9 and 10 this morning. We're going to consider David, the compassionate king, seeing David's kindness to both his friends and his enemies. I also want to invite our members um, to our Lord's Supper service tonight. We are going to be gathering around the table. This is one of those times where not only will we remember Christ's death, which is central to why we gather But also encourage one another and share Thanksgiving regarding HBC's 50th anniversary season. We're encouraging members to come out and um, share Thanksgiving, both the ways that God has worked in your life through our congregation and also maybe even more importantly, the ways you have seen him at work in other people's lives in our congregation. Be thinking about that. Be thinking about not just how he's worked in your life but how he's worked in others congregation other others in our congregation and we'll take some time after we celebrate the Lord's supper to share those things tonight so please join us if you're able. So the last couple of weeks we have been in 2nd Samuel 8 and Psalm 60. And 2nd Samuel 8 is just a recounting of David's victories as king. We saw him as one who conquered all of Israel's enemies from the north, south, east and west. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 60, which is his own sort of journal about those experiences and the struggle that came with advancing God's kingdom in those ways and living out his role as God's king. It wasn't without challenge and difficulty along the way. But in light of the reign of God's anointed king, we've been referring back to Psalm chapter two, which is one of those psalms that is so central. It's one of the often quoted psalms in the New Testament concerning Jesus, because it's so central to how Israel thought about the king. And in fact, Psalm 2 teaches us that there are two responses that people will have to God's anointed king, both David in his day and the Lord Jesus in our own day. Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, describes one of those responses. We read, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's the sensible response. Serve the Lord, rejoice, kiss the son, take refuge in him. And we see that kind of response from Mephibosheth. I'm going to mess that up all week. I've been messing it up all week. I'm going to mess it up this morning. Just call him, or eventually you're just going to call him M. Mephibosheth. We see that in Mephibosheth's response in chapter 9 as the kindness of King David is received. And he says, I'm your servant, pays him homage, serve the Lord, rejoice, kiss the Son, blessed are all who take refuge in him. But that's not the only response. Psalm 2, again, gives us another response, which is not the sensible response of Mephibosheth, but the foolish response of some kings of the earth, that is to reject the king and to scorn him. Listen to Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to have anything to do with this king. We don't want to come under his kingdom. We don't want to be a part of his reign. We want to rule over our own lives. And we're going to see that response in chapter 10 as the Ammonites respond to David's overtures of kindness to them. So which response will we have this morning? Will we receive the kindness of our king like Mephibosheth, or will we reject the kindness of our king like the Ammonites? That's the question before us this morning. That's what our text is about. So we're going to look at chapter 9 first in Kindness Received. And then we're going to look at chapter 10 with kindness rejected. First, kindness received as we meditate on David, the compassionate king. So after a period of many years, remember chapter 8 is sort of a summary of David's 40-year reign and all the victories that he achieved. David is desirous of keeping the promises that he made to Jonathan, who was his best friend and Saul's son, to look after his family when he ascended the throne. Now, let me remind you of what those promises were. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 13 to 17, Jonathan says the following to David. This is before Jonathan died. But should it please my father to do you harm, that is, his father Saul, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. In other words, Jonathan is saying, I'm loyal to you, David. You are God's anointed. I know Saul is fighting you because he doesn't want to give up the throne but I'm loyal to you. He says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Verse 14, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. What's he saying? If I'm still alive, which unfortunately he isn't, he dies with Saul. But he says a second part, if anyone is in my family, there's anyone in my house, would you show them steadfast love? For my sake. Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan's pleading with David, Please remember those who were in my house and do them good. Well, how does David respond? Well, we read in first Samuel twenty four, verses twenty to twenty-two, the following. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. This is Jonathan again and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David's response, verse 22, David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David swears not only to Jonathan, but he swears to Saul himself that he will take care of those in Saul's family and in Jonathan's family in turn. So David is determined to show kindness. We read in chapter 9, verse 1, his commitment to fulfill those promises and pledges and that covenant that he made with Saul's family. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's been doing it all along. The question is phrased as though there, he can't think of anybody that he has not shown kindness to. He says, Is there anybody left? I've tried to keep up my end of the bargain here which is an amazing show of compassion on the part of David, isn't it? This is the family that spent their life trying to kill him and keep him from the throne. And yet David, because he is filled filled with the Holy Spirit and he's God's anointed king, he is desiring to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan had been David's best friend. He tragically died in the battle against the Philistines, fighting at his father's side. And so Jonathan, as Saul's oldest son, should have felt entitled, right, to be the next king. But Jonathan recognized God's hand on David and selflessly stepped aside so that David could become the king because God had chosen him. And so now that David is king, he wants to see if there's any relatives of Jonathan's that are still alive that he can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. And so David ask Ziba, who's a former servant of Saul who is now working with David, if there's anyone in Saul's family who are still alive. And he tells David about Mephibosheth, who's a disabled son of Jonathan. In fact, we get more details about Mephibosheth earlier in 2 Samuel in chapter 4, where we read Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as he fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now we're told here again in chapter 9 that he's crippled in his feet. But I think we get more details that should cause us to have even more compassion for Mephibosheth than just the fact that he's disabled. Did you hear what... 2 Samuel said in chapter 4, he was five years old when the news about Saul and, came, and Jonathan came from Jezreel. He was five when he lost his dad. A disabled boy at five years old loses his father and his grandfather in battle. And then his crippled feet came as a result of of the nurse taking him up and fleeing in haste and falling down we don't i mean we assume that's a great fall but I mean, mephibosheth's life was marked by the sin of Saul and he didn't do anything wrong and he lost his dad at a young age and so it should come as no surprise that David's heart warms toward the news that Mephibosheth is not only alive, but that he has an opportunity to do good to him. Look at verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should regard, have show such regard for such a dead dog as I? David extends kindness to Mephibosheth in two ways specifically. First, I'm going to give the land that your grandfather owned back to you. It's going to your family, which is everything for financial security and well-being that he would ever need. Remember, property was ev- family and property was everything, and Mephibosheth has no family. But David's going to make him family. He says, you're going to sit at my table always. You're my son now. He essentially adopts Mephibosheth as his own, and he gives him the land of his father. He has security, and he has family all over again. Could you imagine how much joy would have come across Mephibosheth's face when he heard those words, do not fear. Those sound like the words of Jesus, don't they? Over and over and over again to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've not come for the reason you thought I've come for. I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do. I'm going to treat you with grace. I'm going to treat you with kindness. I'm going to show you compassion. David is not merely fulfilling the letter of the promises he made to Jonathan. Mephibosheth is not merely being tolerated. He's not just not being executed. He's being received. He's being accepted. He's being exalted. And while Mephibosheth says, at your service, David responds, no, 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 at my table. He's being invited into David's family to be cared for as a son. And so we read in the second part of the chapter, beginning at verse 9, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. What a kindness. And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. He knows he's crippled. He can't till the land. He can't work it. So he hires out a labor team to take care of Mephibosheth's land and make sure he gets fed. And we read, But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Samuel just keeps throwing that in. He's lame. He's lame. He's disabled. But David extended him kindness. Now this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible and one of the sweetest for sure. Typically, the kings of that era would execute members of the family of a previous dynasty, wouldn't they? To prevent a coup. But that's not the way David is, and that's not the way David acts. David's loving kindness to Mephibosheth is a picture of God's loving kindness towards us as his people. Dear ones, we are the Mephibosheths of the world. We are the spiritually deformed and disfigured in our sin. We have a way worse problem than feet frailty. We are the ultra-unlikely of being received by the king. We are not just the undeserving, we are the ill-deserving. We are the nobodies of the world, the undesirables. And if you think you are, you don't know yourself as you ought to think. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to be taking these kinds of words and say, Lord, how could you show such kindness for a dead dog like me? If you don't know yourself, As someone who is undeserving of God's kindness, you will never receive God's kindness. Because it's in recognizing that we are so ill-deserving that He pours pours it on us in lavish and excessive measure. We are those who are spiritually lame, unable to come to Him, being dead in our trespasses and sins. But the Lord showed kindness to us for the sake of another who kept a covenant that we could not keep on our behalf. Just as David shows kindness to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan, so our God and Father shows us kindness for the sake of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He invites us, though we were far off, to come to Him and adopts us as His sons and daughters. We say, Lord, just treat me like one of your hired hands. And He says, no, you're at my table always. He resorts. He he makes a new place for us to live in called the family of God, the church. And he restores to us the domain that was lost by our father, Adam. And we aren't just going to get some real estate that Saul owned in Israel. We are co-heirs of everything that Christ owns, which means we get the new heavens and new earth as our home forever. Bought and paid for by Jesus, co-signed by the Father and the Spirit, and owned by us as if it were our own. We are set to reinherit the world with Christ when he returns. Now the Hebrew word for kindness here is the common Hebrew word has said, which is just covenant loyalty or faithfulness. It's a difficult word to translate, but it refers most often in Scripture to God's covenant affection, his care, and his commitment to his people. It's often translated steadfast love. Now the same God of Hesed has shown kindness in Christ to all who come to Him in faith. What do we read in Romans 5? While we were still weak, Christ died for us. In fact, worse than weak, we were Christ's enemies, Romans 5.10 says. We had nothing to offer. There was no reason for God to show us kindness, but He did it anyway. For Jesus' sake, and now we no longer fear Him as His enemies, but love Him as His sons and daughters. We eat with Him at the communion table, like we will tonight, and one day we're going to dine with him forever, as Revelation 19 tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Mephibosheth story is a wonderful foreshadowing of these realities. And like Mephibosheth, how should we respond? Because we've received such undeserved favor, we should be humble and we should be grateful. We ought to reflect the Lord by extending grace to those who don't deserve it, right? How can it be that we as God's people who have been treated with such undeserved kindness by the Lord cannot extend that horizontally to others? What is messed up in our souls if we can't do that? We should be able to liberally forgive and liberally overlook and liberally receive people because that's the way the Lord has done us. I'm, I'm guessing that Mephibosheth, now we're going to read more about Mephibosheth later in the story and things don't go Quite as well. But in this moment, how could you imagine Mephibosheth gets picked up? He gets seated at the king's table and he starts snapping at people. Hey, 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 hey. I don't like that food. I I, don't, you didn't, I, I got a gluten allergy. Now that's legitimate, I know. But it's, you know, just starts complaining about things. But didn't you get my, that's not, now that's not the dessert menu I read. I mean, can you get me something else, please? I mean, please, I'm a king's son now. Come on, come on, come on. come on. Can you imagine him doing that? No. He's going to be grateful. He's going to be humble. Whether it be our coworkers, our parents, our spouses, our fellow church members, our kids, our neighbors, our family members, because we have been treated with such lavish kindness by our God, we should be eager, humble, grateful, and willing to extend that to others. We should also be like David, right? We should keep our word. We should have integrity and follow through on the vows and promises that we make. Most importantly, those we make in our baptism and in our church membership and in our marriages. We should keep the covenants that we've made because those, those covenants that we make carry with them obligations that we promise to fulfill in our lives. And David's a good model for us here about how to keep a covenant. And aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus did that for us? Kept his covenant, even when it was really costly. David's out, out some money here. He's out some real estate. But he's willing to do it because he knows it's the right thing to do. He knows it's the right thing to do to take care of Saul's family that he agreed to when Jonathan asked him to do it and when Saul asked him to do it. Even though they were wickedly sinful, not not in Jonathan's case, but Saul's case, against David himself. So that's kindness received. Secondly, kindness rejected. Kindness rejected. Chapter 9, and the reception of the king's kindness, stands in sharp contrast with chapter 10, where we see the rejection of the king's kindness. Mephibosheth receives it as a friend of David. Well, David doesn't just want to extend his kindness to his friends. He also extends compassion to his enemies. And we see the way they respond in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Let's reread those again. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Remember, the Ammonites are arch enemies of Israel. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Now, David had enjoyed a good relationship with the king of the the Ammonites, Nahash. We learned about him earlier. He was helpful regarding many aspects of David coming to the throne and was an informant of sorts and helped David. And so David wants to extend kindness even to people who wouldn't fall under his jurisdiction as king. He wants to deal kindly and compassionately. Now, according to Old Testament law, Israel was called to wipe out the people occupying Canaan or sorry, according to the Old Testament law, Israel wasn't necessarily called first of all to just wipe out the occupants of Canaan, but they were first to offer peace to the neighboring lands. This is what David's doing. We read in Deuteronomy 20 the following words about what David is doing here. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peacefully and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives into your hand, and you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock, and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Now what happens when David offers kindness to Nahash's son Hanun? Well, we read in verses 3 to 5 that David's sons are humiliated, And insulted. We read, But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think... This sounds like the serpent, doesn't it? This sounds like the serpent in the garden. Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? See, always misreading motives. Just assuming motives. We don't know motives, friends. But they're just reading all into this. You really think he means to do kindness? He's trying to get us in a place where he'd kill us. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Again, just misreading the motives of David entirely. Based on their own sinful dispositions. So what happened? Anun took David's servants, verse 4, shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. This would have been a sign of humiliation. But it was told David he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, just hang out here until your beards grow back and you can come in with your head held up. So again, David protecting the reputations of his men and not wanting to them to be needlessly ashamed in front of, for things they didn't have anything to do with. They were being sent on a mission from David to offer peace, and they come back humiliated. Dear ones, welcome to the Christian life. Sent on a mission of peace from your king, only to be humiliated and insulted all along the way. If we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we too, like David's servants, will offer, suffer rejection for his sake. Will be humiliated, insulted, and mocked. Your enemies, as Christ told us, may be those of your own household. And just as King David was concerned about his humiliated servants, the Lord Jesus notices when you've suffered humiliation for his sake. And he pays attention to you and he cares for you. In fact, it's the persecution of Christians. That the early church saw as the immediate fulfillment of Psalm 2 that we read at the beginning of the sermon. Do you know that? Peter and John, when they were rebuffed for preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, what did they say in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 29? Well, let me remind us. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they quote Psalm two about the pushback that they're receiving for being, for preaching King, Je- King Jesus. Then they apply it to themselves. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what we need to pray. That's what we need to be. Let's continue to speak even when we are silenced. In Acts 4, the church uses the realities of Psalm 2 to pray for boldness. And so, continue, continuing to speak, they continue to suffer. And they also continue rejoicing because of the high privilege it was to suffer for Christ. Acts chapter 5, verses 40-42. to 42. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. His, Let let our first instinct not to be to get a lawsuit. There may be a time and place for that, but let it be, what a privilege. What a privilege. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. (laughs) didn't stop them one bit, caused them to keep talking more and more and more and more. Is this not what Jesus told us to do, dear ones? Matthew five eleven and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what was happening to David's servants here. They're getting all kinds of things said about them and done to them because of David. And none of it's true. But because they work for David, they're going to be humiliated and insulted because they work for David. But Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and so they persecuted the followers of David in 2 Samuel 10, Jesus could also add. So back to 2 Samuel 10. After this humiliation, what happens? Well, David does what Deuteronomy 20 tells him to do, go to war. Not because he has some sort of vengeful, vindictive spirit about him, but because that's what God told the king to do. I've made an offer of peace. You've rejected it. We're going to battle now. And we read in verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians and Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers. So they're building their army. The king of Makkah with 1,000 men, the men of Tob, 12,000 men. So they got an army, 33,000 people deep, something like that. When David heard it, he sent Joab, so they're taking the first, they're, they're, they're manning up first and going after David. But when David heard of it, he sent Joab, which is his military commander, and all the host of his mighty men, that's his army, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in the battle array at the entrance of the gate. The Syrians of Zobah and Rahab and the men of Tob and Maka were by themselves in the open country. And then we read in the verses 9 through 19 that Joab looks to the Lord for help and then employs sound military strategy to bring victory over the Ammonites to the people of Israel, and they're soundly defeated. Now, it seems that the truth of Psalm 2 is playing out, isn't it? Psalm 2, verses 4 to 9. God sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's what God is declaring to the nations. David is my king. David will not be defeated. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." And Christ has asked of the Father to give him the nations, and he is now moving out church by church, missionary by missionary, into the nations in all times to bring in the people that he has redeemed. And so we have a choice, don't we? This These texts show us the contrast of receiving the kindness of the king in verse in chapter 9 or rejecting the kindness of the king in chapter 10. Serve the king, scorn the king. Christ's rule is the best rule, isn't it? He brings peace. But while he is for peace, many are for war. David was for peace. The Ammonites were for war. Are you for war this morning? If you're not a Christian, you're for war. Say, I'm not killing anybody. No, but you are warring against the king of the universe by not submitting and serving him. He's offered you kindness. He wants to put you at his table. He doesn't want to take your life from you. He wants to give you life. He's not trying to make you a servant, a hired hand. He's trying to make you a son, a daughter. You get everything He owns. Now you've got to suffer like His son did, but you'll be exalted and raised. Dear ones, don't fight Jesus. Because while receiving this good good rule is very good news, rejecting His rule is very bad news. Today, the rulers of the earth, of Psalm 2, are every one of us. By nature, we set ourselves up against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, I'm going to burst His bonds apart and break His shackles and two. I don't want anything to do with Him. I'm going to treat Jesus as a casual Facebook friend. I will interact with Him when He pops up on my feed, but otherwise I'm going to ignore Him. But dear ones, more than ever, it seems our culture and... Been this way since East of Eden. We want to run our own lives the way we choose. Did you know the number one song that's played at funerals is not Amazing Grace? It's my way. That's appropriate. That's honest. And it's an offense to the king. But God is a God of kindness. <laughs> lavish, overwhelming kindness. And it's even his kindness that puts us here this morning so that we can hear of his kindness again. That he desires that his kindness would lead us where? To repentance, not rejection. So he delays his judgment that we might receive his kindness. Romans 2. David delayed his judgment too. He allowed the men to grow their beards back before he did anything. His wrath didn't have a hair trigger. He wasn't going right after him. He waited. And that's a little portrait of the Lord's decade, century, millennia waiting. As people sin against him thousands and thousands of times a day, reject his rule over and over, play my way at their funerals, the sun comes up, the rain comes down on the just and the unjust every day. God's kindness pouring over his enemies and his friends all day long. It's just mercy over and over again. It's grace over and over and over again. And what's all that meant to do? Romans 2, 4 and 5. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance? I hope you don't presume on it. Don't presume. Oh, don't presume. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a day coming where a hard and impenitent heart. By the way, let me say something about that, especially to our kids, young people this morning. Romans 2 says something here. When we continue to not receive God's kindness, which means actively submit to Him as Lord and walk with Jesus during our lives, our heart is not getting any softer. If you're saying, I'm going to become a Christian a little bit later, you have no biblical guarantees of that happening. In fact, you have the opposite. Because what Paul says is hard and impenitence is what follows that. When you continue to stiff arm God's kindness. It doesn't make you softer, it makes you harder the more times you stiff arm God's kindness. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to receive the kindness of the Lord, not wait. Because when we wait, we don't get softer we get harder, and the, and the repentance becomes more difficult. We're all by nature that way, though. Every single one of us. We're all by nature rebels against God's kingdom. We've all tried to live our lives without him, intentionally or unintentionally. And so we all deserve his judgment, but God provides a refuge from his own judgment. He took the judgment on Himself for His people on the cross. And those who are willing to kiss the Son and bow to His Lordship will find a welcome at His table and a spot in His family. (laughs) And so those who rebel, though, will be conquered under His feet at the end of history as they call for rocks and mountains to fall on them to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. One way or another, every knee will recognize, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that David is God's anointed king. That's what's happening here in chapters 9 and 10 and 8. Everyone's agreeing. He's God's man. But in a much greater way, when Christ returns, all eyes will see him, even those that pierced him, and say, this is God's son. And some, by grace, were able to see it when he died. Remember the centurion? That surely was the son of God. And for all we know, we'll see him in heaven. Today, not just the thief, but maybe that centurion is with him in paradise. So for those of us who are believers and are walking with the Lord, let's not presume his kindness. Let's enjoy his kindness. Let's be humbled by his kindness. Let's be grateful for his kindness. It's not something we deserve, and so we should be eager to receive it and eager to give it. That's the way we show the kindness of God in our lives. What does God want us to do in light of his kindness? Be kind. (laughs) Be compassionate. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. That's what he wants. So may he help us to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these precious chapters in your word, these pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of David as we are reminded of David's kindness and compassion that he extended to Saul's family and also to, the, to, the, to the, those who were loyal to him in various ways and even his enemies. Lord, desiring to show peace toward them, he was not for war. And yet, Lord, in our sin, all of us confess this morning, though you were for peace, we are for war. Lord, we have set ourselves up by nature against the Lord and against his anointed, but we thank you that he is a place of refuge. We thank you that we can, by your grace, humble ourselves, serve the Lord, rejoice, kiss the Son, find refuge in Him. And Lord, your kindness is so lavish and so good. Thank you that you don't just give us a place in your kingdom, but you give us a place at your table. Thank you that we're not just servants, that we're family. Thank you for adopting us and making us your own. And thank you for all the benefits that come. a family of God that we have from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and a local church family to walk to heaven with, and a future and a hope and the joy of the kingdom of heaven, which we will get a foretaste of tonight at the Lord's Supper. And so, Father, thank you so much for all this kindness that you extend to us, all the food and shelter and care for us and taking care of our temporal needs and seeing to it that we have what we stand in need of. And so you are kind and you are above and beyond with us. So thank you for being so generous. Thank you for being so indulgent. Thank you for being so gregarious and and generous and outgoing and and lavish in your generosity. It knows no bounds, Lord, and we are recipients of it, grateful, humble recipients of it. And for any of us this morning who are outside of that kindness, who came in indifferent or actively stiff-arming the kindness of God, Lord, melt us. Melt us before your kindness and help us to see that life in your kingdom is the best life. Lord, we don't have to be disabled, crippled creatures walking around wondering what we're going to do next. Lord, we can be at your table, provided for, cared for by the King of Heaven. And so thank you for that. Help us not to reject it. Help us not to read suspiciously into your motives for why you want us. You don't want to do us harm like the devil suggested. You want to do us good. It's not just all trees you have forbidden. It's one tree, one tree, not all the trees, devil. So Lord, thank you for being so kind. Help us not to, in our sin, warp and and think bad thoughts of you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.